Sometimes a lot of the immobility or tension in the joint comes from a chronic nervous system hold, a kind of a subtle bracing of the body. That's why sometimes under the influence of certain relaxants, you find your mobility is significantly better than it is otherwise. Right? Ask the yogis on the Ganges, you know, with their ganja, you know, and stuff like that, right? Or if you've done anything else, uh, any other sort of substances, say, that have a great relaxing effect on the body as one of its effects, you probably find you can do much more in terms of mobility than you could before. Your muscles haven't got any longer, just become more relaxed, you know? So sometimes when we do this strong stretch, you cause, this is what I said uh, the other day, but I'm just saying it again just for, com- for context, then you force the joint, the, the nervous system sort of brace against the aggression. And so you're sort of doubling down on the problem. And you may, if you keep doing that, weaken the tissues enough that you can go further in the stretch. You know, you kind of weaken them to the point where, and the tendons and so on, and then you, ha- you ha- encounter all these sorts of problems like uh, injuries and things like that, or compensatory injuries, like you're stretching your hamstrings and you hurt your low back, stuff like that. But for myself, I um, had a surgery, um, abdominal surgery, that uh, went quite wrong. And I was left with really bad um, chronic pain in my hip uh, that would go through my right side. And, you know, I've done martial arts and so on since I was five, and I know all about stretching and done it all my life and training of all kinds all my life. And I found the thing that helped a lot and now I have no more pain in the hip at all you know and more mobility than I've ever had in my life but strong too you know as you can see with the lotus and so on you've seen my hip mobility with the demonstration and um, I found that that 70% movement was the thing that did it it allowed the body to just be safe moving its comfortable range of motion and then just opened just opens gradually and that mobility you can keep I've, this has been my experience. But regardless of the, if, if your goal is to you know, improve your mobility, absolutely your goal, that's a different consideration. But certainly in terms of intimacy with the body, the 70% rule is a good one to try. I'm suggesting it's parallel, or I'm suggesting it's comparable, at least as a metaphor, at least as an analogy. And I'm also suggesting that if you get the feeling for that in the body, then it's easier to get the feeling of that in other areas too. So when you have that somatic learning, this is what I'm, this is what I'm proposing. When you have this somatic uh, understanding of push, let's say, or aggression, or neuromuscular confusion, then it's, it's uh, when you encounter those neuromuscular confusions or push or aggression in other areas of life, you kind of feel them in the body. And in some situations, uh, it's good to have neuromuscular confusion. For instance, uh, if you're a musician and you're, you get really, really good, there are less and less areas in your playing that you can really grow in with large amount of return on investment in terms of time spent. So when you're playing and you come across a corner of your neuromuscular patterning that doesn't, that's a bit confused, like a black spot, it's great because you think, finally, oh great, I've identified something that's not quite working. This is great. And you learn to really enjoy the neuromuscular confusion. A little bit like a bodybuilder, I assume, we learn to enjoy the tension in the muscles, you know. You kind of learn not too much, otherwise your arm falls off, right? But just the right amount, that kind of thing. You can kind of become a connoisseur of fatigue, muscular fatigue, if you're really good at strength training. And same with neuromuscular confusion. You can become a connoisseur of the neuromuscular confusion. 
relaxed. You have to be relaxed, otherwise all you do is just build resistance. So you're relaxed and you simmer in the neuromuscular confusion like a sausage in a pan and your skill base improves. But it sneaks up on you and suddenly then you can sort of just start doing it. You can't do it, you can't do it, like Aaron, we're talking about this. You can't do it, you can't do it, you can't do it. And then you kind of can, and then you can, and then you can. And then it's easy. What most people refer to when they say, oh, a shock from the, for the system, they talk about the psycho-emotional or psychosexual aspect. Mm -hmm. uh, there's also the physical aspect, of course. But one of the ways that you can look at these kind of explorations that people put themselves through in all kinds of ways, right? Just saw some uh, uh, footage of somebody on, you know, like filming at a big, big, big workshop with a couple of thousand people and, you know, it's lots of pumping music and things like that. So there's many, many ways that you can amp up your system and there's many ways that you can shock your system. The shock to the system can be kind of like a pattern interrupt and it can uh, rearrange certain things. This is, by the way, the reason they did electroshock therapies, right? Which is considered one of the most brutal and archaic things to be done. It's pretty, uh, it's pretty edgy, though, exactly. It's certainly on the edge. But that's exactly what that whole uh, theory was, that when you had these uh, patterns that you couldn't break and you were very depressed or suicidal or... Um, you know, manic or all kinds of things, right? They would essentially apply electroshocks to your brain, which would completely scramble your system. And then, ta-da, you start fresh. You can't fucking remember a thing, including your children at times, right? And there's all other kinds of horrible side effects. This is the extreme form, but it resets your system. So that's one belief and and you don't mind the collateral damage of the pattern interrupt in the rest of your life which we also all know because we've all known people who've gone to workshops come home propose the divorce uh you know and and i mean you know there's there's a million examples of how people have gone to the edge and then uh destroyed their lives made some really you know, outrageous decisions based on a peak experience. So the thing that I consider personally, having been, you know, a counselor for a long time, having had over 40,000 hours of men hours of actual counseling in my life, right, where I've sat with people, is that most people tend to want to be pushed to the edge in areas of previous injury. So you know, you see people, they've had, uh, whatever, in the worst case, sexual abuse. Uh, now they're healing their sexual abuse by uh, having a guru fuck them, right? So it's just spiritualized. That, that's the extreme form. But there's, of course, many much milder, much more insidious forms where you um, find situations in which other people push you in the, sa in the same area that you've had previous injury. Now, there is certain forms of therapy... Um, some of which have been disproven vigorously by science, which doesn't necessarily mean anything, but where you reenact somebody's trauma pattern so precisely that it pops. That can be done, but that, that would require incredible skill and time and space and research and many people being involved in the process and you know, timelines, but it, it could be done. 
but that's usually not what happens when people go to their edge, right? They just get a fresh hit of an old injury, this time with some kind of meaning attached, often spiritual meaning, um, or at least developmental, personal growth meaning. And within that, you have that moment of this incredible flush of all the feel-good hormones and all the protective hormones and the whole thing, the same thing that Steve describes with the body. And you might have some learning and you might have some expansion, but very often afterwards you get scar tissue or you get um, aftershock or you get rubber band or you know, all of those kind of things. Instead of doing a electroshock therapy, so to speak, you could engage in creating different patterns that become stronger than the patterns that include the scab or the injury. And you could engage in the kind of learning where you are not brutalizing yourself and you're not um, letting the state experience overrun your actual feeling about what's happening. And you learn proper boundaries. You learn, you know, about your consent around other people and around the workshop teachers and so on and so on. And you actually empower yourself for short, like it's, it takes a little bit longer and it's certainly not as sexy, but it's actual learning that will last your lifetime. Um, and integrated learning and it belongs to no one but you versus having to go back to that thing that pushes you to the edge over and over and over and over and over. Yeah. And so then there's lots of people who have to constantly go on retreat because only on retreat can they achieve the state that they think is the thing that's going to help them. So they can't have a proper life because they have a life and they work in their life to make the money and the thing and then they have to go on retreat or on workshop or on intensive or on whatever. And then they feel like... Oh, it's okay again, and now we're going back to the life. So there's no integration of how your life is with what you've been given. Yeah. The thing is, if you feel like uh, you're attracted to those things, if one feels like one's attracted to those things, then one ought to do them. So um, otherwise, you're just taking secondhand recommendations in a certain sense. If you feel like, if you see something and you go, man, I want to, you know, do, do, I say, do it. Why not? But pay attention to the feeling, you know, and if you have good sensitizing, good sensitization training, you have a good intimacy with the sensations in your body, things like that, then you'll be better equipped to ascertain the impact and, and so on of the thing. The whole thing we're driving at is an attempt to empower people to make their own distinctions, to navigate themselves with their own intelligence, you know, not necessarily ascribed to some slavish 70% dogma or whatever it might be, you know. So in a certain sense, you have to try these things. And uh, as an independent person, thinking for yourself, feeling for yourself, it's difficult though, you know, because uh, susceptibility to groupthink, um, attempting to leverage the body for psychological payoffs. You could say egoic payoffs, but egoic I just mean self-image, refinement, you know. Um, leveraging the tissues of the hormones or whatever it might be through aggressive practices in order to f have a psychological payoff. So you're sort of, uh, it's like um, going to the desert for a glass of water in a certain sense. Eventually practicing to take from the body 
leaves a strip-mined nervous system. You know? But maybe it doesn't. In which case, go out and push your edge. You know? Listen to the contrarians such as ourselves who are a little suspicious of this endless carrot dangling, this endless shifting of the goalposts, this endless sort of flagellation of the participant into a frothed-up state, which, of course, compounds the self-image. You're not where you should be. You're not correct. Don't listen to your body. Your body's wrong. Your body's the thing that needs to be disciplined and conditioned. Your mind is the enemy. It needs to be disciplined and conditioned. You're not deep enough. You need to deepen yourself. You're not expressive enough. You need to be more expressive. In other words, you're wrong. You're wrong. You're wrong. You're wrong. And every time you engage in those practices, you swallow that pill. You know, and you reinforce that structure, you know, which is very reassuring to the ego is structure, consistency. Dependability is very reassuring. So these are things to consider as an intelligent person and weigh on, based on your own experiences without feeling restricted. We're using resistance as an analogy. And they're, uh, an, they're analogies of, a, of an electrical circuit. On the one hand, there is a certain sense, and Michaela will talk about actual barriers and resistance, I think, probably uh, here. But on the one hand, a lot, a little bit, this is like the stretching business, right? That on the one hand, the sensitizing momentum is that downward spiral from the gross to the subtle. In other words, and you've heard me use this example before, but if you're at a KISS concert, right, we're at a KISS concert and I'm trying to talk to you, you won't be able to hear me because of Paul Stanley and all these fellas in KISS, right? But if we go to the library and you talk to me at the same volume, It'll be, I'll be able to hear you very clearly, and probably you'll be very loud too. So the, the value, volume at which we are, sensation volume, that we are kind of attuned to or accustomed to, you could say, things below that level, or at least significantly below that level, that are going on, we won't be able to detect. So on the one hand, there's this idea of sensitizing, which is the idea of paying attention, responding, like we did in the morning with the men, uh, turning the head, responding to the neck, that sort of thing. When you start to respond to what you can feel, rather than, say, driving through it or whatever it is. You, as a sensitizing phase, right, you may do things with it later, but as a, a phase of sensitizing, you respond to what you can feel, then typically you begin to feel more and more and more subtle things. This is sort of obvious, right? You sit and watch Lord of the Rings uh, for three hours, and you don't notice your back hurts until it finishes, and you stand up and you go, oh, I'm so stiff. You, know? you were stiff all the time. And if you certainly, if you decide to sit in meditation for three hours without moving, like you did with Lord of the Rings, you'd fucking feel it quicker than you know, the end of the ring going down the hole, whatever it was. So, you know, so it's some, something to do with like stimulation, the sensation where your attention is and that sort of thing. So there's a big component of that, being able to navigate the uh, spectrum of sensitivity. Because sometimes we're up here and sometimes we're down there. It's natural. You know, traffic jam... It's different from being in a forest for a week, you know, in some sort of retreat, right? So you have these different things. So becoming acclimatized to this, or uh, not acclimatized, uh, becoming fluent with that is really, really useful. Because then you know, where you, you, know, you know how to navigate in a certain way, your own sensory range. So there's a big part of it that sometimes you think, gosh, is this resistance or is it just insensitivity? Well, a lot of, a lot of times it's, it's just sort of somewhat of a sensitizing thing. And then you have a further phase before Michaela talks about the blocks, which is discrimination. Discrimination. In other words, you begin to feel things, but what do they mean? You know, this is Michaela's wine-tasting analogy. 
So now you feel more things and you don't know what it means. It's sort of a big mush of like confusion and so on. And you don't really know what it means. And then you become, through calibration and uh, investigation, you become better able to distinguish the sensations that might be actually quite new to you. So, say you've not felt this new thing before. And then you begin to you know, get a little bit uh, more understanding. So you sort of have the sensitizing aspect or the uncovering of what's already there. There's the discrimination aspect, the clarity, the sensory clarity about what's there. So these things are sort of can be done. This is a little bit like moving the body's comfortable range of motion. These things can be done before you need to necessarily worry about the resistance part of it. But that being said, there is a resistance part. <laughs> well, so then how does this all translate into sexual yoga, right? Because this is, a, this is the first of a series of sexual yoga that if somebody has the stomach to see it through in, in, in actual full-on yogic sex, right? So the first, you know, one of the things that you always hear about, of course, is the, you know, the, the circulation of the energy and the no longer ejaculating and the full-body orgasms and all of those kind of things. And so when you look at those things, what you're looking at is the distribution of the available energy throughout the whole system. Uh, particularly when you talk about full-body orgasms, which everybody wants to have, um, you are looking at your available energy uh, being distributed e evenly through the channels, so to speak, right? In, in yogic uh, uh, theory, there's channels, right? But you could also say the meridians or your nervous system, right? If we want to stick with the resistance, so energetic, you know, like electricity circuits. So... If you really want to stick with electricity, the, the cortex of the brain emits 44 megahertz per second, which then gets equally distributed on all the different things that it needs to keep the body going. But that's your max. So you can't go and get some upgrade on the RAM. Right? You just can't. There's no quicker processor. So what that means really like in the nitty-gritty technical piece is that you have 44 megahertz per second available and they get distributed on whatever you need to distribute it on so if you spend a massive amount of um, energy on one thing it automatically means that other things don't have that much it's like the old windows you know, at the old computers where you had windows open, you had to close certain windows so you could run another window. Well, that's exactly how your brain is. And there's no upgrade available for that kind of a thing. It's like bandwidth, yeah. So you have a certain thing, and now you have to uh, manage that. And so, um, you know, just in, in, in energy management, without the sexual stuff, what you're usually looking at is that you have to maximize where you put your energy. So a lot of uh, techniques around that are uh, focus meditation or focus in general. How do you keep your focus? How do you not multitask? Uh, you know, how do, do you keep things going, systems to keep things going? Also, that the energy gets channeled. Most energy can channel down one thing. If you are a high performer, like either an athlete or a rock star or something, right? Everything else gets shut down, including people giving you food and, um, you know, you 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 shutting all the other windows down so that all your energy goes towards that performance, whatever that performance is. So when you look at resistance, the way we're looking at, it, bless you. Um, what you're looking at is essentially um, knowing which channels to use 
sexually and in this case uh, for feeling, right, for, for, for senses, for sensations, for what's going on in your body. And then sexually, of course, how you connect with another human and how that connection translates in your body and where it goes. So the first thing you do is you learn how to bring your energy where it's useful. Right? You lower, as Steve said, the ambient noise. You know the channels you want it to run. You're sensitive enough to know where the energy is in your body, which is the first step, really. You can't learn about energy distribution if you don't know what the hell is going on here. So, so you do all of these things, all of which we are attending, and then you'll notice for your particular performance, let's just say now this is the pleasure sex performance, that you have areas of um, energy leaks or resistance that make it so that your energy can't run clear along the channels that you want to have engaged. And then everything we did today, right? Create, the last piece you did here with Steve, the uh, learning distinctions both in the touch and in the receiving touch and the energetic emotional information that goes into the touch right, is, uh, is, is one way of training. Another way of training is what we did first thing in the morning where you work with your channels, where you feel your channels, where you sensitize to your channels. And then you notice where is resistance. So another way of saying resistance would be areas of numbness, areas where you can feel, um, uh, overload moments, right? Once again, to stick with the electrical, you have so much pleasure that you have to shut it off. You know, you're an upper ceiling on something. Uh, trauma, uh, meaning, you know, something kicks in that allow, allows you to, not allows you to go any further because you had something happen in that way. Um, general overload, your system's just so overloaded by stress that you just can't, you don't have what it takes to send energy down those pathways. So those are the barriers or the resistance to energy conducting properly. Right? And so what often happens is people do the practices for the uh, bypassing of the ejaculation of the full body orgasm in a woman, but they have neither the sensitivity to actually feel where the energy is co coming or going to, or their channels aren't very well developed. And then you often see this, right, the, 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 the attempt of the kundalini to rise. Well, people have these you know, massive things happening uh, because they're not actually prepared to conduct energy properly, right? And they're not actually uh, equipped to conduct in all, you know, in all areas. Or they can't. They don't even have enough energy to even get the thing going because they're so fatigued. Or they have trauma, and you know, or they have an upper limit and it shuts off. So those are all the things to consider when we talk about resistance. And not to sound like a broken record, that's where the seventy percent thing comes in really handy because you're not blowing out your circuitry, but you are exploring. Um, and you're sensitizing at the same time, and so you get to feel what's happening, and you get to uh, develop your system or clear your channel, however you want to go it, without the circuit breaker, you know, kicking in.
You know, when we do the chicken? Remember the chicken? And then sometimes I say that you try to make it as smooth as possible, right? And I say, and I say there's two ways to be smooth. You can slight, say you feel a certain judderiness in the range of motion, which is not unusual to find that. You can slightly tense, slightly tense to kind of iron out the crease in the neck, iron out the judderiness, which is, I was suggesting, papering tension over tension to create the illusion of smoothness in this case, or openness. Or you can relax and do a little bit less. Relax and do a little bit less. But in order to do that, you have to have sensitivity to feel. You have to have honesty. You have to have openness to what's there. No good if you, because you could do it yesterday, you assume you could do it today, that's not open. It's not open also if you need your neck to be smooth in order to convince yourself that you're yogically progressing or some other such narrative, right? It's, it, these are irrelevant. What's happening in the neck is all that matters in that moment. And uh, so you just relax and do it a little bit less. Mm -hmm. oh, but, oh, but I could do more yesterday. So, well, this is today, you know. This is today. <laughs> you know, that's um, what I'm suggesting. So uh, you, there, is a, there is a glass ceiling to the amount of smoothness, openness, skill, so on, you can get from papering tension over tension to create the illusion of it. You can get somewhere with it, like, like once again, the musician analogy, or, or any sports analogy, any physical analogy, unlearning bad habits. The, pro the, the reason un bad habits are un hard to unlearn, of course, there's a neuromuscular aspect, but there's also the problem that you have to give up the skill you've achieved to a certain extent in order to retrain the body to do it properly so you can surpass the point that you're at. That's difficult. Say you're playing the guitar the wrong way or throwing the javelin the wrong way, let's say, or inefficiently. But you're pretty good at it, relatively speaking. Well, now you have to retrain yourself. So you're going to be really shit at throwing the javelin for two or three months, you know. But then if you're willing to do that, then, you know, your skill base can go much, much further than your bad habits uh, than the previous place, you see. So there's all these sort of psychological hindrances, not to mention... Neuromuscular ones. The neuromuscular ones are simple because they're honest. You can do it or you can't. It's simple. But the psychological, is the deception can come in there. You see. And the discipline to back off, like let's say intense pleasure, right? So often what happens is uh, I would say more people um, shut down in intense pleasure than in intense pain, right? Because they're used to the pain that they've, they've engaged in that thing. But then they suddenly have pleasure more than they've had before. And it's like, ah! No. And then, depending, this is one of those barriers, things, right? Depending on what happens, it could be that some trauma kicks in or they're overloaded, they're too stressed, they're too fatigued, and they shut it all the way down. And so there, it's not like a little bit of pleasure uh, or, you know, the multi-orgasmic whole body thing. It's all or nothing, right? And, and in, the, in between all or nothing, there's, of course, a huge range where you can traverse, and when, it, when you feel you come to the overload part, you back off a bit, and you hang out there, and you hang out there, and then you'll rest, and then you'll go there again the next time, you know, you're engaging in that thing, and, and you notice where the shutoff is, which is maybe on a different date, a different way, and you never overtax your system to the point that it fries. Oh. Because it's, it, it's way, way harder to recover from an injury, so to speak, than it is to train a little bit less, yeah, but consistently. Often, um, well, this is true for all humans, but often how women first learn about pleasure is, of course, masturbating long before there is sex involved. 
And often that masturbation, of course, doesn't happen uh, freely, openly, you know, leisurely in the living room, you know, um, in beautiful nature, you know, free of guilt and fear and whatever. That barely ever happens, right? So most of us, um, you know, masturbate late at, or at night, you know, when, when going to bed, after homework, you know, with maybe your sibling in the same room or whatever your scenario of first discovering your body's pleasure. So by the very nature of that, and also by the very nature that you really don't know what the hell you're doing, I mean, maybe you did, but I remember going, wow, this is interesting. What is this? Uh, and, and so you learn masturbation, and with that, the, pa the pattern of pleasure um, under a certain kind of stress or duress or thing. So, so together with your pleasure pattern comes a whole muscular pattern of tension. And, but because you have the pleasure and because um, that's how you learned it and because, of, of course, also clitoral stimulation, in a woman now, clitoral stimulation has a tension pattern attached to it anyway because it's the center line of the body that does a certain thing to make the energy go a certain way. So there's also just an arousal pattern that has a certain tension in it if you don't know what you're doing. So you accumulate this whole circuit that has everything in it. So now uh, you start having sex with a lover, and so now typically how it goes, this is also not true for every woman, but often how it goes, you have sex with a guy who also doesn't really know what the hell he's doing that well. And even the guys who know what they're doing are often not that great when you're 16, 17, 18, whatever. So now you trying to come to orgasm is has even more repercussions of a psychological and emotional nature and you know you want to come before the guy comes because god you know like, I mean, there's all kinds of shit nobody here knows what i'm talking about right <laughs> um, so you, you're, you're dealing with all the stuff that that impacts the way arousal and and, and sexual climax happens and then that's what you have, right? So then now you know that if you want to come and you want to come quickly, you do this, this, and this, and this, then you can possibly come before the guy comes and, you know, world peace is, is restored. And, and so then you practice that over and over and over and over, and so that becomes your reliable go-to pattern. That's it, of course. Once you start investigating your own pleasure consciously, you'll start noticing these things, right? Like you were describing. And of course, if you have a lover who is skilled, that person will immediately go, <laughs> don't do that. And if a lover is really skilled, uh, you know, they'll keep you from going there, which can be intensely infuriating and frustrating. And also, exactly, because that's another emotional thing then. But even, even if you're not shutting down, it, it has that confusion and what am I doing and it's not happening and ah. so so that all said often it's very good to play with this by yourself and not start with a lover unless you have somebody who's really dedicated to that purpose and that purpose only so to speak right where you find with a woman it's it's you know it's it's a bit different than with a man because you have several places where you can create very deep pleasure 
So with a woman, I would probably say, lay off your habitual pattern for a while. That's how I was taught, but there's other schools of thought, right? And find different ways, like for instance, go for G-spot only for a while. And for instance, with G-spot, the more relaxed you are, the more pleasurable it is. Versus the more tense you are, the more pleasurable it is. And of course, G-spot orgasms don't have that intense <laughs> to it. So it's a completely different pattern in the body. And you can allow yourself to relax. And it's usually not related to the childhood stuff and the you know, old boyfriends and all of that. So you start creating a different uh, investigation into your circuitry. And that usually helps loosen up the whole thing. And then you could also, um, for yourself, stimulate, uh, if you like clitoral orgasm, stimulate and notice when the tension happens and lay off. Notice when the tension happens and lay off, uh, which is going to bring your arousal down. Now, you can do the same with a partner, of course, till you get to the point where that particular circuitry isn't the only thing you have access to. Well, it takes a bit of work, and particularly, you know, a little bit further down the line, there's a lot that goes in there. So often it's much easier to go other places than to do that relax, relax, relax on the thing that you have such a strong programming on. So. <laughs> You want to say something about the guys? Well, it's pretty much the same, I think, yeah. thing is, you know, there, are, there, are, there is tension involved. There is contraction involved in the action. But it's the untangling of what's... That's what you're, ask, you're talking about. It's the uh, additional tension patterns or so on that aren't, say, directly related. That one, one, one is what would happen if those could be relaxed or uncoupled from the required activation or tension yeah. for the sex or orgasm so it's not so much the whole body must be limp and dead because <laughs> of course you'll be alive and responsive and contracting your heart's contracting at least occasionally right <laughs> your respiratory muscles are contracting so on so there's it's not like relaxation is the the key it's more that when you as Michaela's saying you notice these well why do i always do like you know this like right when i'm about to start the on-ramp to climax why am I doing this? You know, or, or I hold my breath and twist my torso in this kind of way, or like I stick out my leg and come. Yeah, onto you know, a teddy bear. Stuff like that. <laughs> and you say, mm, okay, let's see. If I don't do that, what happens? And then it's like, wow, it's difficult to access the pleasure then. Uh-huh. That's so funny because they're so connected. Because yeah. the body learns things usually. Just it assumes everything that's happening, at least certainly if it happens repeatedly, mm-hmm. it assumes that that's all supposed to be going together. Right? That's, yeah. it, that's the honesty of the body in that certain sense. That's why when we're doing this, for instance very similar. I'm suggesting you do it relaxed, breathing, not crazy stress responses, not, you know, because then you can do it, but now you look like this, you know, it's like, well, it's kind of unnecessary. You see what I'm saying? So it's a clarification of what's needed in a way, or what's, yeah. No, it's, it's fun though. It's not a terrible exploration. And probably nothing will significantly, you're not going to start levitating or something if you reach this sort of Shambhala state of, of coming like with only the required musculature or something like that, you know. You'll still have to pay your taxes and, you know, worry about like, you know, whatever it is. That's the sensitivity and the discrimination reveals as you're describing these things. And then you can engage in the sorts of things Michaela's suggesting to begin on picking them for interest and range, not necessarily better. 
just, you know. Well, it certainly impacts the relationship if you don't want your man to have any visible pleasure, right? I mean, no doubt that will curb his pleasure quite all right. There's consequences to that. There's impacts to that. Yeah. And recognizing that dynamic is the doorway to feeling its consequences. Yeah. Those consequences, the painful, cons the painful implications of those things, that perhaps somebody that you care about, you're restricting, let's say, could be, right? Who knows? Um, be, not because you mean to, but because of this dynamic, uh, which was previously unconscious. The, beginning to get a flavor of that, feeling that, which is the door you've opened, is the means of recalibrating it. It's the means of you saying, oh, it doesn't feel good to do that anymore. But you need to be able to feel it in order to be retuned. You can't have any judgment on it. You just have to go, wow, isn't that interesting? Ha! Huh. Right? But not make it mean anything about you either. Right? It's just, it's an honest engagement with another human being. Yeah. And um, once, you, once you engage there, you'll find probably all kinds of mechanisms that have previously not seen the light of day, but have played out throughout your relationship. You've been together for a long time, so of course, you have things that have lasted for most of your adult life uh, that, that just now you go, holy shit. Uh, and so it's very important to not squash that and, and make it mean something bad, but just go, wow, ha, uh, and, and be with that. Wow. So it's good. <laughs> The first thing Steve said when he was, what did he say, there's nothing to rappel down yeah. on or so something like that? Too, yeah, yeah. Um, one of the more terrifying aspects of God sex, so to speak, right, that, that sex where you are not active in your persona is that there is nothing to hook on. And there's no reassurance or um, continuation or security or reaffirmation or any of those things it's it's um, I don't know what yeah it's there's no there's no hold on it right? which of course requires that all of that stuff has to go and so often like I said you need to say that but often what happens is that in a woman's um, experience the connection comes with a bunch of suction cups or hooks or stuff like that mutual. right in the mutual for the most part right so it's never really an issue people get together and they have certain agreements and they have certain things and their their sexing is conditioned to fulfill certain agreements in the relationship, right? If one person suddenly starts getting completely unsticky or, or smooth and you can't hook or suction cup anymore, the other person is going to feel massively abandoned uh, because there isn't that mutual no longer goes in and then there's no purchase. And in that moment of no purchase, you are left with nothing other than your own internal stuff, which to most women doesn't feel like relationship. So sexually speaking, when a man's that empty, so that heavy, it really it has that 
it, it feels like massive amounts of weight. It's just you can't you can't attach anything to that weight. It comes and it goes. Right? It's like clean entry and exit, so to speak, and and um, you don't even know what happened, you know, till later, and that can be very disorienting. If we talk about this in the context of two practitioners, which is very rare that uh, it's just two practitioners coming together doing this and then they have separate lives and they're not in relationship in a certain way. But how, how you know, God's sakes, if we stick with this, is often practiced is amongst practitioners who are not marriage partners or uh, even spend any time together outside of those practices. That's how it traditionally was done because it has huge relational repercussions that in, in, the, in the proper instruction of these things doesn't have any place for. But nowadays, most people want to have uh, you know, a house, uh, two station wagons and a kid and a dog and God's sex, which isn't that easy to achieve because it is very, very stunning when that kind of thing kicks in where it's completely impersonal and the real key there if you both are into that is that there's a it has a clean end from the impersonal and goes back to the personal which in itself is an issue but if you want to engage in that it's usually useful to have certain things that are clear outside of that moment so your hooks don't have to come out or try to get purchase in that moment because that's not the moment to get purchase if you want to engage in that kind of sexual uh, you know game because the the hooks is what makes it normal sex versus god sex so to speak Intimacy of any kind is difficult for abandonment because to be intimate with something is to feel the potential of its loss. You see, feeling uh, intimacy brings with it inevitably the feeling of the loss of it, potential loss of it, because it's always coming and going right at that second, constantly anyway. The idea of the continuation is something of a cognitive dissonance anyway. It's like an illusion in a certain sense, you might say. You're always losing it every single moment. It just happens to come back up again. You know, it doesn't mean it will in a second, you see. And everything's like that in a certain sense. That's impermanence, you know. And you can get a, a visceral sense of impermanence just looking out the window or looking at a wall in a zendo. And you can have that same thing. Or experiencing your own self as constantly living and dying, constantly living and dying, living and dying. Not fixed, empty of continuity and so on. So, yeah, if you have abandonment issues, yeah. But we all have abandonment issues on that level, yeah. on the level of the continuation of the sense of separate self. It's a matter of parsing it apart for the occasion, right? Because God's sex isn't a lifestyle, so to speak, right? It's one expression of what can be done uh, with these kind of practices. Some, most people don't give a shit about any of this. And, and rightly so. This is not some, you know, lifestyle thing that you have to adhere to. It's just if you happen to have a propensity towards wanting to explore circuitry in the body, um, the, the psychosexual, emotional, um, you know, makeup that leads to that kind of an expansion or that kind of, you know, however you would want to call it, 
it's an interesting thing to consider. You can live a whole life without doing that and be just fine, right? And some people have spontaneous moments, and that's what I meant with most people, you know, have an occasional real amazing sexual experience where they completely have that, but then they can replicate it and they chase it like a first drug trip or something like that. And their skills and their technicalities that then and that's how it's meant, right? So in the classical sense, the tantric path, the only reason there's sex involved in all of these things is as a as a way to engage with all of life. Because the thing that is so massively apparent in the sexual occasion and between two people is everywhere. Yeah, and as, as Steve said, right, I mean, everybody's got abandonment issues in, in that way. So it's not like you do the sex thing and then that's that. It's like the sex thing is kind of just a, a line of inquiry or, or, or a, a one way, a one filter that allows you to then play this everywhere because everything is sex in a certain way. Right? Um, everything is that too. The, you know, in Tantra, they call it spanda, the, you know, the pulse, the pulse of the universe. And so you have, you know, you have expansion, you have contraction, and you work with that. So if your lens is the sexual investigation, your abandonment issues will come up in the sexual investigation. If your lens is whatever, Zen Buddhism, your abandonment issues will come up in Zen Buddhism. Uh, if your lens is being a vegan, it's going to come up there. It's just going to come up. It's just a way to exercise uh, and not, you know, not um, not exorcise, but exercise that particular thing. Well, you have the morning practices that you did, uh, solo practices. You can certainly engage in those. Um, specifically regarding conductivity, any sensory stimulus can be related with uh, and experienced. In that way, so you could go, you know, and like put, you know, stroke your hand on the grass, something like this. Really lovely feeling that, or um, touch your own body, or have a bath, you know, any sensory stimulation you'd like. Or you can sit uh, stock still until you're in tremendous amounts of pain and, and trace this sort of flow of uh, sensations to the body. Or, or you could have some terrible news on a phone call coming to you. And then you're flooded with simulation of a certain, a certain type, etc., etc. So, or you could be sitting in traffic and you feel a subtle agitation feeling. Tuning in is a really nice way of putting it. Yes, it's a nice way of putting it because it implies that you're tuning into what's already there. Because that is the sexual occasion, you know, with all of of the, the world out there, right? You can you can have sex with that beautiful purple flower out there, right? By by letting it hit you and you know, feeling purple flower all through your body and then giving back to the purple flower if you want it to go. You know, you, you can do all of these things internally without ever having a partner. You can do all the sexual practices internally without having a partner.